Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. In this episode, I'm lucky to be speaking with Professor Peter Doherty. We cover a wide range of topics, including his unique career as a veterinary surgeon turned research scientist and eventual Nobel laureate in the field of medicine. The COVID-19 pandemic and the different public health responses to the virus around the world and how societies could change on the other side of the current crisis. Professor Peter Doherty shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1996 along with Swiss colleague Rolf Zinkenagel for their discovery of how the immune system recognises virus-infected cells. He was Australian of the Year in 1997 and has since been commuting between St Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis and the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Melbourne. The Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity is named in his honour and the Institute is leading a lot of the research into COVID-19 in Australia. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor. It's a really great honour to be speaking with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm not doing much commuting at the moment. I'm locked down in Melbourne. So. <laughs> That's right. And in fact, I've come to the end of that part of my career, and I'm basically in Melbourne, though I still spend a bit of time in St. Jude, which is a wonderful place. <laughs> uh, maybe I should have read a, a more updated biography. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Yeah. No Good. worries. So, uh, Professor Doherty, you recently lit up social media with a viral tweet, um, pardon than pun, in which you accidentally wrote um, Dan Murphy opening hours into Twitter rather than a Google search. Can you yes. speak a bit about the reaction to that tweet and how you found social media throughout the pandemic? Well, it, um, it, it certainly uh, it was a mistake. I was on Microsoft Outlook doing emails and I was in Twitter and I, I thought I was in Google. And so, but it caused a lot of amusement. My wife told me immediately she picked it up that I made a complete fool of myself. So I responded, tried to respond lightheartedly as quickly as possible to try and diffuse it. That worked. And I, um, I think to some extent it humanised me because mm. titles like professor and Nobel Prize winner make you into something else. And, yeah. you know, I'm just, I'm just as uh, stupid as anybody else is and we all mm. are stupid at times. So, mm. um, yeah, it was kind of fun. And then I got a lot of exchange back on it and I've ended up with about... Um, uh, 18,000 more followers as a Amazing. on Twitter. Very happy and, accident. Uh, mm. and, and, and uh, I, I think people, it, it was right in the sort of grimmest period of locking down. And I think people just found something amusing and different. And so mm. they, they really enjoyed it. So I've kept that up a bit. I mean, you know, I'm tweeting from reputable sources, uh, particularly uh, the Batuta Advocate, which is a wonderful <laughs> newspaper. And, and it's just revealed just revealed that the, um, uh, the 1918 influenza pandemic was a result of 5G interference uh, uh, <laughs> from the Marconi system in the telegram delivery service. I did see that article. That's very good. I look forward to their profile or interview with you. It'd be a good exclusive. Yeah. I think they did one with Malcolm Turnbull a few years ago. But um, I'm happy to be interviewed by them anytime. They're a very reputable and old news <laughs> Um, so if we can just um, come back to, I guess, a question about life now during the pandemic, I wondered what you miss most about life as we knew it, um, especially in inner city Melbourne. Um, oh, well, it's always nice to go out for a meal and go to go and uh, our local pub serves good meals and we go up there quite a bit, just the general walking around and walking around downtown. We live very close to downtown. We can walk down there from here. Uh, mm. Just uh, normal... Um, going into the office and all the rest of it because uh, we're still um, uh, largely not going in. And uh, 
And of course, because I'm older, I'm 79 and my wife is also, uh, and we have other conditions, we'll be pretty locked down for a while yet until we know what's happening. Mm. Have you done any sort of um, ordering in of your favourite pub meals and stuff, like on Uber Eats or anything? Uh, we, we get a pizza from the local coffee shop uh, who nice. doesn't normally do that, but she's, uh, she's keeping herself running by doing a bit of carry-out stuff. Mm. And, um, and basically, uh, we ordered from Dan Murphy's online, so that, was, uh, that worked <laughs> well. And we do have uh, um, grandchildren, a son and daughter-in-law not far away. So I think Dan Murphy's um, Dan Murphy should um, give you some like a year long supply worth of um, free drinks because of your influencing your social media influencing. I think they stuff. offered a bottle of Grange, which we uh, we declined for the moment because we we're very sensitive <laughs> about making any uh, personal uh, profit out of any of this. I mean, yes. you know, you will have read that the institute is getting large amounts of money coming in. This is all for the work that's been done on vaccine development mm. or. Um, or drug trials and so forth. None of it comes back to any of the people in mm. the Institute, of course. Yeah. So in a recent profile with the AFI, you wrote, never ask a scientist uh, what they're thinking, ask them what they're working on. So speaking about the Institute and yourself, what are you and the Institute working on at the moment? Well, what I'm working on is basically I'm doing public communications. I'm almost 80 years old and it's some years now since I've actually run a research lab. Uh, I did come to the end of, we came to the end of a big, what we call program grant, where we had multiple investigators on that grant uh, for influenza at the end of 2019. So I was still on that, but my role was essentially as a discussant and to help with writing up papers and so forth, which is a, a lot of what senior scientists do anyway, apart from getting around the place and talking about the research. Uh, the Institute, though, is working extremely hard on the science and on the diagnostic work. And, uh, it's, you know, we have a complex institute, a very unusual, quite unique in Australia, where we have the Academic University Department of Microbiology, which is a very strong department, uh, combined with uh, the state virus diagnostic labs for, and reference labs for bacterial viral diagnosis and for... Um, and the World Health Organization Influenza Center, one of six worldwide, and the clinical doctors who have labs, but are working across at Royal Melbourne Hospital in their infectious disease program, also have their labs in our building. So we have, uh, we're partly funded by the university and partly by Melbourne Health, which is the state, mm. and, uh, and also some federal money. And, uh, and that's why we've been so effective because we're combining the intellectual, academic, basic research end with the very practical end. And uh, the reason uh, we were the people who first isolated the virus outside China, I think, wow. we're certainly the first people to give the virus out. And we had, uh, as soon as China announced the sequence of the virus on 9th of January, the head of Vidral, the virus diagnostic setup, uh, went out and, uh, and developed a PCR test so we were all set to go when we had our first case on 25th of January. Someone who'd come in from China and self-identified, did all the right things and, uh, and went straight into hospital. Mm. And so, uh, so we've been rare right from the beginning, but a lot of our work has been initially through the Vidral Group and Mike Catton, who heads that, and Julian Drews, who isolated the virus, to get all the testing out there to get it out of our institution because we only could test a limited number, but we were doing everything to begin with, uh, to get it out into the private labs, the hospital labs, 
make sure those tests are validated, make sure everyone's reading off the same thing. So there's a lot of work like that just had to go on evaluating new tests, which might be faster and more convenient and all sorts of things. We turn around these tests in, in 24, 36 hours at the most. Though sometimes there can be a bit of delay in reporting. So yeah. that's, but then there's a whole lot of basic science going on about developing vaccines, uh, testing drug candidates, uh, and a lot of very practical stuff too. The business as usual sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, much beyond. Uh, because what's happened is people who would not normally have worked on this uh, have been pulled into it. The, the bacterial diagnostic outfit, which is headed by Ben Howden, a fantastic group, which does a lot of, whenever they isolate a pathogenic bacteria, they sequence the whole bacterium. So mm. this is coming out of the community straight into d- gene sequencing. Uh, they've sequenced over, I think it's 1,200 of the COVID-19 isolates. And there's a preprint out there about um, how that's allowed them to identify different groupings because the virus has little mutations in it. They don't change the, the antigenicity, the, which we worry about with, with vaccines, but they, they do act as markers. They're like a barcode. And so they can uh, say how many different types of virus are, how many different little uh, species almost of virus are out there. And they can say, you know, a lot of these are, it's about say five cases that are in a uh, particular grouping or, or, and most of them, of course, up till now have come in from overseas anyway. So um, that's a very powerful technology. And then other people who uh, would normally work on basic immunity now are doing virus immunity. So everyone's come in behind this and uh, the influenza groups working on it, uh, everyone. Yeah, fantastic to hear. So just to come back to, um, I suppose, your, your life and career as a whole. So you write a book, How to Win a Nobel Prize, A Guide for Beginners, uh, which is about providing advice um, in part to young scientists. So the book covers your career as a research scientist and your journey to ultimately winning the Nobel Prize um, and beyond. Uh, Could you provide an overview of some of the key moments in your life story and career which brought you to where you are today? Well, my my, um, research story is very unusual. I didn't start out to be a medical researcher. I trained to be a vet and uh, um, at the University of Queensland, I started, went into the vet school when I was 17 and graduated when I just turned 22. And uh, I was working for the state government because they paid my way through the university. So I was sent out into the field for a while, did field veterinary work, and then was pulled back into the lab because they had some research money and the guy that was supposed to do the project um, uh, got out of it. And there I started doing um, research with infectious disease of domestic animals which I did for 10 years, I'm very interested in what's called pathogenesis. I'm very interested, my basic interest is in how disease processes work. And, and early on, I worked with some bacterial infections, but basically it's been virus infections. And I've been working on virus infections now uh, since the mid 1960s, mm. so that's 55 years. Um, and uh, um, I did that for 10 years, um, four years at uh, in Brisbane and then, uh, um, the rest of that time at an institution called the Mordun Research Institute in Edinburgh, where I was working on virus infection of sheep and doing diagnostic pathology. Then I came back to Australia. I was going to come back and take a senior position at CSIRO Division of Animal Health. Uh, but um, I'd just been hearing about this new, new area of cell-mediated immunity, and I asked the people here, I would have come to Melbourne, uh, whether um, I, they'd mind if I took a couple of years off 
and learnt about this. So I got a, a bit of funding to go to the John Curtin School of Medical Research in Canberra. By this time, I'm, I'm married. We have two kids, uh, both born in Scotland. And, um, and that's where we made the discovery that led to the Nobel Prize. And so since 1974, 1971 really, too, I've been involved in basic medical research and that's been the rest of my career. And mm. I've been worked uh, twice in the United States, back in Australia for a while, and then finally at University of Melbourne. Reminds me of that uh, Robert Frost poem about the road less travelled, you know, taking sort of unexpected turns. Yeah, and... yes. Well, uh, the scientific road is a bit like that. I mean, if you're in a research career, uh, you can start. I have uh, very, uh, great colleagues, for instance, who started out in plant science, who are now uh, 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 in India, Mm -hmm. is now one of the leading authorities on what's called the inflammasome, which is one of the, the, the which is part of the inflammatory response. It's one of the problems with uh, COVID-19. So, so we, we often end up in a very different place from where we were thinking we would mm -hmm. be. Uh, this also happens to people who train as medical doctors who suddenly find themselves off in the in a research theme and they may decide that's what they want to do. So, so yes, I, I think, uh, and that's a bit the way the world is now, isn't it? We, yep. we train early on uh, thinking this is our expertise and, and we find ourselves doing very, very, very different things. And, and so that's kind of fun, but it's challenging. And I've at times, uh, several times actually given up uh, uh, full-time jobs with secure retirements and all the rest of it to really take much more tenuous positions because it was more exciting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, life is a, an adventure and, uh, and of course you're going to take a few hard knocks with it, but that's the way it is. So what advice would you give to young people, you know, setting out to become research scientists today, uh, to embrace science as a way of life and a career rather than, you know, taking those secure kind of routes? Well, it's a, it's, you, you need to realise what you're doing. I mean, if you want a bit more security, of course, and you've got the grades, maybe go to medical school first. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and of course, med, going to medical school does open up a whole lot of other great opportunities to you because uh, then it's much easier for you to work directly with patients. Though a lot of our basic scientists work very, very closely with clinical colleagues who provide a lot of materials. Uh, though, of course, if you do medicine, particularly in Australia, and you want to do science, it can take a lot of your time. But a lot of these people are incredibly smart people and they're enormously effective. Um, mm. So, um, but if you go down the strictly research scientist road, well, you've got to be flexible and you've got to be prepared to work in other countries. I mean, anyone who goes into basic biomedical science, on the whole, it's not invariable because we do have exceptions, but it's a good idea to spend a couple, of time, a couple of years working in another country. I mean, that broadens your horizon. And it's mm. actually one way you can get to travel and work in another country <laughs> with all the, the barriers going up. Um, mm. and, uh, and just be flexible and, and uh, follow your main chance in this. And uh, not everyone who sets out to do science is going to make it. Most don't, and they never have. But many of them go into all sorts of other activities where they've been enormously effective. Because if you learn how to do science, you learn how to, t to, to handle data, you learn how to generate data, analyze it and write it up. Mm. And actually, uh, it's a very data driven exercise in experimental science, at least, or for the people who do much more mathematical, what we call in silico research. Uh, it's very mathematical and statistical. And it leads to the site. If you do that sort of research, you get the type of skills that would fit you to be in the banking industry. 
Yeah. Or if you really want to go to the dark side, the gambling industry. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you can make a lot of money out of that. And, yeah. uh, or you can do something useful. But, uh, um, and then in, but the biomedical researchers, I mean, you see them go on to have jobs in, uh, in banking and, uh, and sometimes in, um, um, we, I know one who was a very distinguished high school principal. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of our, one of our young uh, PhD graduates uh, went straight into a, a, an additional program for uh, school teaching. She loves it. Uh, and she'll, she'll end up as a high school principal somewhere, I guess. Another one of our young people did the same thing and hated it and came back to the lab. So, yeah. you know, uh, and then there are business things. So science is more and more pervasive through our, our culture. Yep. Also, a number of people who've done, say, PhDs in biomedical science, gone back and do law or something mm-hmm. like that or business. Yeah. So your biography on the Nobel Prize website concludes with um, the following lines. Intellectually, I march to the beat of my own drum and have little interest in competing in races. There are too many, uh, too few people working in the area of viral pathogenesis, pathogenesis and immunity. Too little funding, too many problems and too little time. What do you think of those last three reflections in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, that's, um, it's, it's pretty much still spot on. I, I think the, the level of interest in viral immunity has gone up. But we had to work hard at that. And uh, also things like SARS coming along and some of the influenza threats did put that level of interest up. So it's now a much more, a much more uh, centre stage activity than it was. But it's never really centre stage. It's a, um, it's a bit of an aside in the biomedical world. The, the basic molecular cell biology, the type of work you get going on in cancer research labs uh, or uh, 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 cardiac labs and that it's much more sort of central to uh, to to the whole biological story so we're still a bit off to the side in the disease world but there is a lot more interest now in viral immunity but I've always I've never you know some people like races they want to win races it's, it's yep. a feature of the biomedical scene and the research scene I've never had the slightest interest in it I thought if somebody else is, is a, if it's a useful question and if someone smart and useful is going to do this, well, why would I do it? So mm. I've always uh, followed my own line of interest and, uh, and carved my own way. So sometimes I've been very fashionable in science. A lot mm. of people have referred to our papers. And sometimes um, I've been unfashionable. And it really doesn't bother me very much as long as we can get the resources, the research funding to do the work. Yeah. And you've spoken about yourself being a bit of an outsider sometimes in the scientific community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, 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 it's a bit my personality, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not political. I'm useless politically. And, um, and whenever I get involved in any sort of political thing, I, I'm, I'm not helpful because I'm, I, I just say it as it is, basically. I'm, I've no interest in lying. And, you know, if you want to get on politics, you've got to be able to lie. And, of course, mm-hmm. the President of the United States doesn't do anything else. But uh, oh, We'll come to Trump for sure. But um, could you maybe speak a bit about the different virologies of COVID-19 around the world and, you know, why it's sort of, you know, showing up at different mortality rates and having different impacts all over the globe? Well, it's largely, it's partly a public health uh, question. It's really not what I work on. I mean, the same disease everywhere, as far as we know. I don't think there's any difference in the disease. Uh, we do wonder whether it's having less severe effects in some hot tropical countries, but from some of the low incidence reporting we're getting from say Africa and Vietnam seems to be doing very well with it. We don't know what quite what's going on, but uh, it's terrible in South America. So some of those countries are very pretty hot countries. 
Um, there are basically, it's the, uh, th there are several things in it. Firstly, I think we, uh, we don't have quite the level of tourists, although we think we have a lot of tourists, it's nothing like the people traveling through that you have in the United States or Europe from say Asia. So I don't think we had as heavy a, an exposure early on. And, uh, and basically the disease was running, we know, now know it was certainly in France in December, okay. So we had our first case on January 25th. So it was running in France in December in kind of the background and in the community uh, for at least a month or six weeks before they got onto it, yeah, um, wow. two months even. And I think much the same thing happened in the United States. So it was really uh, everywhere in a lot of communities in Europe before they really started to react. We reacted right from the beginning and so we were able to keep the, the amount of community spread very, very, very low. And, uh, and, and uh, latterly, as you know, we've been locking up people for two weeks in hotels to make sure that they don't yeah. add to that. Yeah. But in the US, it was really everywhere before they reacted. And then, of course, uh, in Europe, um, there have been varying levels of success. But if you, if you wait too long, then... The thing is everywhere, even with big shutdown they attempted in Northern Italy, it's been very, very hard to pull it back. So, um, so could you maybe reflect then on those different public health responses? Because, um, you know, you've got the example in Sweden of having a, a less restri restrictive response, you know, too little, too late in Italy, as you just mentioned, but then also New Zealand, which is sort of proactive and, you know, very draconian and, and effective in its lockdown to the point that now they're on the brink of elimination. So... Yes, well, we, you know, New Zealand and us uh, share the advantage of being nation states and a bit off the, uh, the central, uh, traf uh, central mo people movement uh, uh, line. So um, I think we, we, you know, that, that has benefited us. Also, we have been used to thinking in terms of secure borders, being an island state. And that goes way back and, and to our quarantine history and so forth. A lot of that's relaxed over the years, but it's still there in our thinking. And uh, I think what also, I can't comment as much on New Zealand, uh, but what I'm, I think also has been our great advantage is uh, we do have a publicly funded health system, which I think personally for publicly funded health systems is one of the best in the world. And it's a really excellent system. You know, all these systems are challenged by not enough money and all the rest because they're very, a lot of the drugs and things are very expensive, but I think it's a very good system. And I think what it's also shown uh, here, as I've engaged more and more with the listening to my colleagues, we have a three, three times a week strategy meeting, uh, just how uh, robust a lot of the mechanisms we had in place were. Right. I mean, they've really worked well. Uh, but it's also shown us some other de defects in Australia and that is uh, losing so much of our manufacturing has been a problem. We may mm. need to think about bringing some of that back and uh, being a bit more independent of the globalised trade system because with some things, we've definitely been on the end of the supply chain mm. and we still are. And uh, I think we need to think a lot about that. I hope this, um, the, the one good thing will, will come out of this is a sort of massive reset in the way we and other countries approach uh, approach the way the world works and our place in it. Yeah, for sure. And I definitely will come to that um, in a couple of questions as well. But I was just wondering if you could speak um, a bit about how the vectors that give rise to pandemics, so increased trade and travel through globalisation, rising urbanisation and population density and factory farming uh, are all prominent features of the 21st century. 
Um, so are we more likely to see you know, more lethal pandemics as the century unfolds? I, I, I would, if you'd asked me that question a couple of years ago, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's kind of likely, but we haven't seen anything much yet. But now I know that we, we have, and actually I've been, I've been a little bit, uh, I think a little bit complacent about our capacity to respond. Um, yes, we will do. Uh, this factory farming's not involved in this pandemic. This pandemic has come out of possibly out of live animal markets. We're not absolutely sure. Mm. And I don't think the Chinese are absolutely sure, quite frankly, and there will need to be an investigation, a scientific investigation after this is all over to try and nail that down a bit more, more, more uh, uh, strictly because we don't really know whether it came out of that uh, live animal market in Wuhan or whether someone was already infected who was spreading it in the market, but it mm. does seem to have a focus there. So the Chinese will get onto that, and, uh, uh, but they, they're busy like us trying to deal with the pandemic, and it really doesn't matter at this stage. The, the one that comes out to us through factory farming or has the potential to is uh, influenza. Right. I mean, the, uh, the 2009 one came out of uh, pig, pig farming. Uh, there were two pig viruses that got together. And the, uh, and the other big risk is uh, large-scale chicken production in Asia, mm -hmm. uh, where you've got chickens where they're exposed to uh, aquatic birds, which are the primary carriers of this virus. So it's very important that if you've got those large factory farming operations, uh, you don't have a duck pond anywhere near it and you have netting to keep uh, flying aquatic birds out of the, of the chicken operation. So what other kind of um, things can we put in place to avoid this kind of thing in future, and other, in particular, you know, early warning systems and the sort of cooperation of the global scientific uh, community, you know, through the World Health Organization, for instance. Well, the World Health Organization is absolutely vital. I mean, it's a, it is a UN organization. Anyone who's had anything to do with UN organizations knows there's a certain cumbersome character to it because of the fact that there's so many nation states involved, and it's kind of politicized at the high level. Uh, reappointments. But when you get down to the people who are actually salaried appointees, who are not uh, that type of appointment, it, it's a highly professional service. We do see some variation in, uh, in uh, the top group at times. I think uh, sometimes we have outstanding leaders, sometimes we don't. They've made a couple of mistakes uh, that Trump has used to attack them. In, I mean, Trump is always about, look over there, don't look at me. And uh, um, basically, I mean, they, they were slow to, uh, to announce a pandemic. Uh, there were reasons for that that have nothing to do with China that go back uh, to the history of the H7N9 pandemic. They were slow to announce it, but they were putting out the warnings very, very, very clearly. And there's no doubt that the United States and everybody else was getting those warnings. And then they made a statement about live animal markets being uh, should open. I mean, I think they could have just avoided that one. So sometimes they... they um, but they're absolutely essential on the point of view of coordinating, validation of, of things and so forth. They, you know, they have no funding to do research. They're just a, they're a, an information organisation. When we, we have our WHO Influenza Centre, that's part of um, one of six worldwide that decide on the different flu vaccines and analyse the flu, flu viruses from the region. But those centres are all funded by the national governments. I mean, our flu centre... WHO band, it is funded by our federal government, for instance. Mm. Mm. And so, you mentioned that. Uh, so that's one thing, World Health. I mean, the other is just the general information exchange between public health people and, and scientists. And the other thing is our science is now fantastic. I mean, there was no problem here 
uh, with getting onto this virus fast, identifying it fast. I think um, if you go back to the 1917-18 influenza pandemic, we didn't isolate the first influenza virus, any influenza virus, till I think 1933. Okay. Right. Yeah, so, so then years SARS, on. I think it took us a couple of months to work it out. And that was uh, the World Health Organization influenza people as a network of people who are involved in virus respiratory disease were very prominent in sorting that out. With this one, it was worked out almost immediately because we've had a couple of these viruses circulating and also because our science is now so fantastically better. And we yeah. can, we can uh, diagnose things very quickly, even if it's something quite different. And the fact that we've already got vaccines well through uh, with some of them right through clinical testing and into humans uh, within uh, months of knowing about this is really extraordinary. But, but what that's also shown us is when it comes to vaccines and specific antiviral drugs and treatments and so forth that are specific for the virus, and that's the problem with viruses, mm. they, we don't have any broad spectrum antibiotics because they're not cells, uh, then, then it still takes time. And uh, that's the problem that uh, we have the product, it's being tested, we could give it, we could make it in massive batches uh, right now and give it to people, but we don't know it's safe and we have to make sure it's safe. Right, right. So I was wondering, I mean, you mentioned Donald Trump um, and you've tweeted a bit about him and I suppose being critical of him and, and in your, um, you know, um, field of expertise and I guess professional work as well, you would know some of the key figures who are advising uh, Trump, such as Dr. Fauci and, and the other sort of medical advisors in his team. Um, what, what do you think it was about the US response that has been, um, you know, that has sort of drawn the criticism of so many in the scientific community and in the media as well? Well, um, I, I, I know Tony Fauci very well. I've known him since 1981 when he first came on the scene as a big uh, with the AIDS thing. And then he's, he's been a wonderful figure in American. He, he was um, uh, basically George Bush, the first George Bush's favorite biomedical scientist. And uh, he had him in all sorts of roles. And then his GHW Bush also, he's been there for years, enormously respected, enormously sensible and smart man. And, and of course, then he ran into Trump. And, and you know, the whole ethos of Trump is he hates evidence. I mean, he hates evidence about anything. I mean, he's a magical thinker. Uh, he's, um, his, Trump is basically the star in his own uh, soap opera where, where he's the star, he writes the script, and if, uh, if the reality doesn't suit him, he just rewrites the script. That's the way he thinks. Mm. So he can't think outside that box. So he just makes it up as he goes along. Mm. He's a disaster. But, but the, 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 the lack of a rapid response in the US is not totally down to, down to Trump and mm. his incompetence. And he is highly incompetent and also divides the country against itself and uh, propagates hate. That's the way he works. That's the way he always works. That's what he is as a man, if you can call him that. So basically, um, uh, they, they missed it early on. The CDC, which is the agency that's tasked with developing tests, and it's a national agency, unlike us. We don't have a national agency. We, we have uh, that does diagnosis and public health. We have, it's all state-based. We have coordinating committees of various sorts, but everything is state-based. Uh, but in their federal system, they have the national agency called the United States Public Health Services, which actually has field offices out in all the big cities 
and it has a one central lab, the CDC, the Center for Communicable Diseases and Control in Atlanta, Georgia. And the assay that the CDC put out didn't work properly. So they didn't have a decent assay out of there at the beginning. It was a mistake and that cost them. And then uh, uh, Trump uh, didn't lead. He, and, uh, and then since then, of course, he's put out these extremely uh, confusing messaging, uh, hasn't backed his medical professionals. Our, our um, basic, uh, basically our prime minister and all the premiers have basically listened to the chief health officer who gets all the advice from the scientists and the medical professionals. And uh, Trump hasn't done that. In fact, uh, you know, Fauci's been vilified by his supporters uh, for actually trying to put out factual knowledge. And, uh, and of course, he has to contradict Trump. So, mm-hmm. so Trump is a total disaster. And many, 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 many more Americans will die than will have needed to have died because of Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, making the connection between, you know, Trump and the proliferation of conspiracy theories as regards to the coronavirus in terms of the whole question about you know bill gates and 5g and there was a recent reporting that came out that said one eighth of australians actually believe that you know the coronavirus is somehow involving bill gates and 5g but how does that kind of square with um you know what you just indicated about the advanced scientific capability and capacity to deal with this virus in a preventive sense and then also to quickly develop some kind of you know Well, you know, it shows you that a lot of people have no concept of engaging with evidence. Uh, They they don't understand it. And, you know, some of us have been trying to communicate this. Uh, You you mentioned the book I wrote on The Beginner's Guide. That was the first of six books Hmm. that I've written trying to talk to people about an evidence-based worldview and how science works in language that hopefully people can understand. Um, the one that's most useful, I think, to read if you're interested in that is The Knowledge Wars, which was published in 2015, which tells you people who don't know anything about science, may not even like science, how they can engage with it and get some idea of the validity of what's being said for themselves, where they can look for themselves. So, but nobody, nobody much will take this on. It's, and I think there's several things to it. It's something to do with basic education, something to do with the predominance of magical thinking. And uh, magical thinking, from my mind, for instance, when you say, oh, uh, it, it's raining very hard and it's flooding and that's because we've all been wicked, uh, that's magical thinking. I mean, there's no yeah. connection between anything you do and except where you build dams and so forth that collapse and, and, uh, and, and natural events. Uh, but that's a lot of people are embedded in that. Of course, some of that comes through religion, but, but whether that's a, a, the responsibility of religion type thinking or whether that's just because that sort of thinking is very easy for some people to engage with. So a lot of it's um, lack of education, poor education uh, and, uh, and I think uh, uh, either people just aren't very smart or they're extremely intellectually lazy. They <laughs> will not engage. And I think intellectual laziness and the refusal to engage with anything that looks a bit different is a pretty sad characteristic. Yeah. But, you know, people are magnificent too. And, uh, and I think uh, those of us in the biomedical and research community say enormous thank you to the Australian people and to our leaders 
at the federal and state level for doing the shutdown yep. because that's allowed us to put in place, it's allowed us the time to develop the technologies that will help to protect people and mm. it's allowed us the time to put in place the medical resources in the hospital that will both hopefully protect the broader public and also protect the medical workers themselves because they are very much in the front line. And, and you know, there are hospitals in the United in, in Spain, for instance, where 15 of their doctors have died of this. Mm. And, and so I think we, we really owe thanks to people for doing that. Mm -hmm. Some countries haven't done it. And, uh, you know, they've got mass graves and it's uh, Brazil now. It's into the indigenous population, which we've managed to keep it out of there. So now we're in the difficult time, though, as we take off the controls and as people relax more about this and it's still out there, can we keep it contained? And that's we're much better equipped to do that than we were. And that's why I think the shutdown will have saved many lives. But in the in the end analysis, uh, it's still out there and uh, and people who are older particularly should still be very careful until we know what's happening. You made the point about scientific education and literacy, but I also wonder about, you know, historical awareness as well because it seems to me that we don't remember you know the spanish flu of 1918-19 and it's 50 million dead around the world and the massive impact and suffering that had on society in the same way that we remember you know even comparatively minor wars of the 20th century so do you We're, think that, that plays a part too and uh, human beings um, like to have enemies it seems and this is what trump plays on uh, you're bad guys we like to think there are bad, evil guys that do everything. In my, I mean, there are bad, evil guys, but most of the things that go wrong aren't due to bad, evil guys. They're due to mistakes or incompetence or, or something like that. I mean, it's, I very, very much believe in uh, Murphy's Law, uh, which is everything that can go wrong will go wrong. Uh, Murphy actually designed rocket-powered sleds for the US Army. So you can imagine what happened when it went wrong. I mean, yeah. it would have been pretty spectacular. Yeah. So, um, so basically, I mean, there's also the Peter principle. Every, everyone is promoted to their level of incompetence. That's also a very powerful dynamic. <laughs> so there are many of these things, but I mean, there are bad guys. I mean, they're crazy guys. I'm not sure if they're bad. A lot of them are just nuts. I mean, you know, terrorists of various types and conspiracy theorists. I mean, these people, I mean, they're, they're barking. And, uh, and basically, we, yeah, we don't institutionalise people. Social media gives them an enormous platform for their insanity. And basically, it tells you that, well, a lot of people are kind of nuts, quite frankly. Like Pete Evans, the, the celebrity chef with his um, funny... Um, well, that's, that's another, another phenomenon. I mean, basically, people who are, you know, fundamentally uneducated but are good at what they do and become celebrities for one reason or other, mm. suddenly become authorities on all sorts of things they know nothing about. I mean, some of them are great. They, 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 they follow the right line. But generally, I mean, if you look at them, they're the people who say in the US, they, they do have a college degree. Mm. They've actually had some formal education. And a lot of the people who speak with great authority on these things know nothing. I mean, they're, yeah. really, they're really totally ignorant. Mm. It's been extensively noted in the histories of plagues and pandemics that societies change in significant ways during and in the aftermath of plagues. So people attribute um, the Black Death for the decreased influence of the Catholic Church and the increasing secularisation of society, which led to the Renaissance. How do you think society will or should change as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I hope it'll cause us to rethink a lot. This is nothing like, it's not nearly as bad as 1917, 18. Uh, 
because you know a lot of fit young adults died. And the other re thing, reason that, that this could be bad if it was just allowed to go on and on and on and on, because uh, you know we've got what is it half a million people now infected worldwide, but we, we have eight billion people on the planet. So uh, even if it's uh, even if it's uh, uh, five million infected, okay, five million infected and half and and three hundred thousand plus deaths, probably right. much more, more like probably half a million too. Um, so basically, uh, uh, but there's 8 billion people on the planet. So, you know, if it just went on and on, uh, it, uh, and we have say a 60% herd immunity rate, uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, maybe a billion people, 500 million people dying. So that won't happen because we'll get out there, uh, fairly quickly, uh, by those standards with a vaccine and drugs and all sorts of other things. And, uh, We've understood what's happened. So it's not like the Black Death either. I mean, the Black Death uh, killed a half to a third of the inhabitants of cities. But I hope, because the main impact here, I mean, a lot of people will die, but the main impact is basically going to be economic. And, uh, and basically, uh, that should cause us to rethink, I think, that business as usual is just not uh, the right way to go uh, from any point of view. Uh, the other thing the Black Death did uh, was increase the uh, power of labour because it made labour short. Of course, the, the power brokers closed that down as quickly as they could, but mm. it also uh, changed a lot of the dynamics in society. Mm. It also helped to bring the English language to the fore. I mean, it used to be that the aristocracy in the church used Latin or French in Britain, and uh, then English crept in as well, Anglo-Saxon crept in. That's why the English language is dominant, because it has French, Latin, Anglo-Saxon and various languages all built into it. Yeah, right. And the final question for the interview today uh, is, what do you hope for the world in the next 5, 10 to 15 years as we you know, come through this immediate kind of relief and response of the pandemic and in Australia? Um, and ultimately get through this once in a lifetime crisis. What sort of world do you hope for? The best hope is for a world where the political leaders and people with power uh, are much more oriented towards evidence-based views and not into magical thinking and not into national, extreme nationalism and, uh, and, and, and hate, hatred of the other, which is one of the ways the world goes at times. And uh, that's, the direct, that's the Trump direction. And so I hope we, we reject that totally and that uh, we think in terms of a world where uh, the stated goals of the United Nations and all those organisations, basically, that, uh, a decent world where everyone has a, a decent prospect of at least basic food and housing and, and medical care. And, and there's enormous wealth in the world, but it's massively, uh, massively distributed to very few people. I, I think we need, I think personally, we need to work out how to start redistributing some of that wealth, uh, how to give better lives to people in uh, developing and uh, poorer countries and uh, how best to protect ourselves, to put people at the forefront, not the wealth of extremely few individuals. But, you know, um, breaking the power of those individuals is, uh, and some of them have done great things like Gates, they, they make an enormous contribution and uh, we're grateful to them. But in some way, we have to have a more equitable world that, that uh, basically has us working more together and not against each other. Uh, I think that's uh, very naive and very um, uh, vision, but I hope we can at least make things a bit better 
and uh, even if it's from self-interest, make the planet work a bit more for human beings rather than for the ultra-wealthy few. I, I think a world where we regard people as only uh, you know, products of uh, units of production and consumption is a, leads to a kind of a quite despicable uh, world, quite frankly. Professor Peter Doherty, thank you so much for your time today and uh, thank you for all your service uh, in the community with the, the Peter Doherty Institute and your own lifetime of work as well in the, in the field of medicine. So thank you so much and have a lovely day. Yeah, thanks. Great to talk. Okay. <laughs> no worries. Take care. Bye. Uh, you're welcome.